0: content warning this episode contains discussions of intimate partner violence support can be accessed through QLife life on one 184 527
1: it was classic gaslighting but it just was really hard to sort of see it at the time and you know by the end of it, you would be like apologizing and you're like sorry. I should trust you and like genuinely feeling that as well and like internalizing it.
2: When we talk about family balance, people get really kind of wrapped up in like, you know, what are the motivations? Like, why are they doing this? And I think it's kind of almost pointless to talk about motivations because ultimately, the end is the same.
3: At the center of it all is we choose to behave. We choose our behavior. There are ten million excuses why someone would be abusive or violent etc but we choose to be like that you know and we can choose not to. Welcome to QR
0: Code, an LGBTIQA health podcast made by queers discussing diverse and intersecting topics. QR Code is created and produced on Rwandare land in the studios of 3CR in Fitzroy, Naam, Melbourne. My name is George Maxwell. Ever since Rosie Batty, family violence stories have dominated the media. We've had a Royal Commission. Family violence services have been given more funding. We are simply having more and more conversations about family violence. However, what does this mean for LGBTIQA people? Given that family violence frameworks rely heavily on assumptions of cis-hetero and patriarchal relationships. In today's episode, I explore the topic of intimate partner violence in queer relationships, speak to some people who've experienced it, discuss the additional challenges queer people face in recognising abuse and seeking support, as well as what actually is community accountability and what do we need to understand in order to have healthier relationships. To share her story of navigating an abusive relationship, here's Laura McLean.
1: I'm Laura. I'm a 24-year-old Wiradjuri woman from New South Wales. I am transgender, and I work in the trade union movement as a field organiser. So my last serious relationship was very unhealthy. To say the least, there was a lot of um, emotional and mental abuse, um, which is something that I didn't really recognise at the time, but in hindsight, yeah, it was. Yeah, we lived together. Um, well, he lived in my apartment. He didn't pay rent, even though he made three times more money than me. <laughs> I know for a fact, like, he cheated on me a bunch, but when I called him out on it, he would spin it around of like me not trusting him and, you know, how dare I and like stuff like that. So I think, you know, it just sort of became like everything was my fault because of like the mind games. And the really frustrating thing was like when he would lie about stuff, he thought he was a really great liar, but he was really bad at lying, (laughs) like really, really bad. Like his lies had so many holes in them and it was just like, okay, but you would try and be like, you know, what you've just said is like completely contradictory to this other thing. And like, you know, that doesn't make any sense. Then he'd get like really angry and like yelling and stuff. And yeah, so everything was like your fault for like not trusting him or whatever it might've been. It was classic gaslighting, but it just was really hard to sort of see it at the time. And, you know, by the end of it, you would be, like, apologising and being like, sorry, I should trust you, and, like, genuinely feeling that as well and, like, internalising it. Like, maybe I am just paranoid or I'm too needy or, you know, I'm possessive or whatever it might have been. At the time, throughout the relationship, so I was very new to Melbourne I didn't really have any close friends. Um, I was working in the finance industry and was really struggling to make connections um, with people in that. So I, I was also very isolated throughout the relationship. And, yeah, so I didn't really have any friends. I had, like, work colleagues who would sort of be like, well, he's a dickhead, you should probably, like, leave him. But then I didn't want to be alone and uh, stuff like that. And my mom was like, he's a dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> you should leave him, but... I think, yeah, so we broke up, like, a couple of times towards the end, but it wasn't until, like, I finally kicked him out of my house that it was, like, officially over. Yeah, so, I don't know, it was just all very difficult. The interesting thing about the dynamic, so being um, a transgender woman dating a cishet man is uh, a bit of an issue, there is a stigma Um, in society that trans women aren't really women or that, um, you know, if they have straight male partners, they're not really straight um, sort of thing. And he was very insecure about that. So a lot of it, a lot of the issues was like, I was never allowed to meet any of his friends or his family or anything like that for fear of him being rejected, um, I guess. But um, what was really interesting was like, um, a couple of months after we broke up, like, he actually came out as bi and, like, became a really nice person, which was very frustrating because <laughs> I spent two years investing all my emotional labour <laughs> into this relationship.
0: Shamini works in the LGBTIQA plus family violence sector. But before being in this space, they've had their own experience of intimate partner violence. Like Laura, they have been in a relationship with someone who was using harm, but it was difficult for them to
2: realise this at the time. Like, I was with someone who, like, used, like, a fair bit of, like, emotional violence and emotional kind of manipulation, which at the time I didn't really understand what was happening. What it kind of felt like was just that my options were just kind of slowly being limited or, like, it would just kind of be, like, the smallest things would just kind of descend into this argument of, like, why I should do what they wanted me to do. Um, And I'd be like, oh... Okay, why why is this happening? Like, and you know, I'm someone who's just kind of like, okay, I'll just go along with that because it's easier. And also, like, lots of people in that situation would just be like, okay, and then you you know, you just kind of get used to that. But it keeps happening again and again. Like, slowly, you kind of your world kind of shrinks a bit. I just knew that it didn't feel good, and yeah, and I didn't like being around them, and I didn't like when that happened. And so, you try and steer away from the the things and the topics or whatever that make that happen. So you just kind of go along with whatever they want, which is how that behaviour gets rewarded. Not that that's your fault, but yeah, like, so they get what they want through that behaviour. So that was kind of... That, yeah, that was one of my relationships. And I remember in another one, there was... I think there was, like, a bit of emotional abuse, but, like, I didn't really realise until something physical happened. And it was, like... It was just once, but I think, especially in queer relationships, like, this isn't even on our radar as, like, a thing that happens to us. So, you know, like, all this stuff can happen and you'll just be like, oh, I don't know what that was. That was weird. Maybe they're just having, like, you know, a tough time and I should just be nicer or whatever. Like, I think the the physical abuse was a wake-up call for both of us because it also left a bruise and they couldn't hide from that. (laughs) And... Like, it was, like, this visible kind of shameful reminder for them sort of thing. And then how they reacted to that was blaming me for, like, oh, well, you know, if you had just, like, done this, then, you know, I wouldn't have had to do this. And at the time I, like, agreed with that, which is, you know, like, victim blaming is, like, classic, um, like, person-use-violence tactic. I think when the, like, when the um, physical violence like, incident happened and left the bruise. And, like, my colleagues were, like, dude, like, what the hell? And, you know, they were, like, you know, they were calling it out for me and they were, like, you know, this is this is abuse. And I was, like, like, I was kind of, like, oh, it can't be abuse because, you know, they're a woman or, like, we're queer or whatever, like, all of those things. Like, I just didn't have the framework in my head to even understand what was happening.
0: So why does this kind of violence happen, and what supports are out there? Libby Jameson works as the teleweb manager at Switchboard, an LGBTIQA plus peer-run support service, and has been working in the family violence sector for many years. She explains that support for queer people has been growing to meet increasing demands. She acknowledges the years of feminist organising that have paved the way in creating family violence services but also states that we need to expand intimate partner violence frameworks in order to hold space for LGBTIQA plus narratives and experiences.
3: But that work has been about, I think, um, getting out a, a, a simple message around what causes family violence or what causes domestic violence or abuse and that it is basically the um, gendered drivers so that um, cisgender men, you know, perpetrate violence against women and children, um, the story stops there. But I think that we know that that's not true and that, you know, there's the very famous quote from Audrey Lord, who says that we all suffer under patriarchy so that we live in a society that absolutely puts cisgender, white, able-bodied men at the top. They are at the apex and everyone else is underneath them. And so that's how we suffer because... LGBTIQA plus bodies are policed. We are compared to heterosexual, heteronormative bodies and considered less than. So I think that we all suffer in that way. You know, children suffer in families and we suffer as, as adults in relationships because we are invisibilised in that equation, I guess. But we know that um, people in our communities experience levels of violence at the same rate and we also very much clearly know that transgender women of color transgender women and bisexual women experience the most violence and we we have to pay attention to those stats there isn't enough research done in in the in the violence that's happening in our communities and i think that there's that perpetrators of violence or people who are using violence in their relationships use that against us you know we don't want to talk about the failures that are going on in our relationships especially when the wider community is having a conversation about should we have a right to get married like everyone else we don't want to go out into the community and to make ourselves even more unsafe by talking about the things that are happening.
0: You've been listening to QR Code, an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Today's episode is on intimate partner violence in queer relationships. You've been hearing from Laura McLean, Shamini and Libby Jameson on their experiences and understandings of intimate partner violence. Now Shamini shares their knowledge concerning how abuse in queer contexts works both similarly and differently to in hetero relationships informed by the work they do in training people around family violence.
2: Like a lot of the warning signs that pop up in heterosexual relationships, as like red flags of like, oh, I'm really concerned about this relationship. And, you know, people are getting more and more isolated and less available support. That stuff happens in queer relationships all the time. We are already isolated. We're already isolated by... You know the fact that we're not out, um, maybe at work or at or to you know certain family members or at sport or whatever. There's lots of stats around that because like we're f- we're further isolated, you know, due to the fact that there's you know like less of us so to speak, and so there's there's like more intensity in our relationships. There's more like we have to stay together or like you know you're the one. That's it. Both contexts and both like hetero cisgendered relationships and like and in queer relationships you know violence like violence is like can happen in in any relationship like it is just about power and control and when we you know we do this training we talk about you know there are sometimes like ready-made power imbalances for people who use violence to take advantage of. Um, so, like, you know, in a cisgender heterosexual relationship, there is the obvious power imbalance um, between a man and a woman. But it's also about... so, And there can be, you know, power imbalances in queer relationships as well based on things that aren't gender, things like, you know, financial position, things... You know, so there's... Uh, there's, like, you know, who's, who's a carer? Like, there's, there's lots of different stuff. There's so many different power imbalances in the world. But ultimately, it's about... There's power and there's also entitlement. You don't necessarily need a power imbalance for someone to feel entitled to, you know, your time, your resources, um, your body, your anything. And when that starts happening and it and it keeps happening, that's what abuse looks like. And it doesn't, I think there's a real misconception sometimes of like, oh, like, you know, like it's. If someone's, like, not, like, towering above me and, like, yelling at me, that's, that's not abuse. And it's, like, abuse can be really subtle. You know, it could just be, you know, someone, you know, telling you they'll take pills if you don't stay with them, like, you know, the whole night. You know, we often think of, like, someone using violence as someone big and scary. And there's lots of different ways you can enact violence on someone. Some 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 victims of violence don't like see themselves as violence they see themselves as a carer of someone who's very unwell or like needs help um and things and so when we talk about family violence people get really kind of wrapped up in like you know what are the motivations like why are they doing this and i think it's kind of almost pointless to talk about motivations because ultimately end the end is the same some people go oh maybe it's jealousy or like Alcohol or it's money or it's something. It's like, yep, those can be some enablers of violence, but ultimately it doesn't matter like ultimately it's happening, and the impact on you is still very real and but that, that still means that you need some help.
0: Shamini makes another important point that whilst there's not a lot of research on this, anecdotally, we know that cutie people, which stands for queer, trans and intersex people of colour, face additional issues in relationships.
2: I mean, I can only speak, you know, queer people of colour. You know, you, you accept what, like, the love that you can get, in a way, and, and what people are, are giving you and things. And I remember, like, reading, there was, like, a like a Multicultural Queers in Australia a kind of a book that was like a bit of a textbook for a while from the 90s and, you know, it was talking about all these, um, you know, cutie pox who were just like, yeah, like, I've got a boyfriend and, yeah, sometimes he's a bit, you know, racist but it's fine and, like, all this kind of stuff and I think things have gotten a lot better and I think that's, you know, currently where, um, uh, you know, like... With with some with some trans folks, where you're like, you know, yep, I am experiencing this, but you know, it's it's not as bad as some of my mates who've got it much worse, and you know, this is this is the love that I can get, and it's it's it it it's nice, and it'll do for now, and that sort of stuff. So like, it's 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 a pretty sad state, and when we hear that stuff, like sort of <sighs> where you can't really like, it's you know, a lot of it's anecdotal and and things like that, and you just go yeah, like, this shouldn't, this shouldn't be happening and that shouldn't be the love that you get.
0: Like Shamini Libby comments on how violence can be excused, issues of entitlement, and the fact that if we are using harm against a partner, we do have a choice to stop.
3: Power and control is a really... is at the heart of understanding family and intimate partner violence. So one person's aim... To have control and power over another person's and the way they do it. There's a myriad of ways that um, someone can try and control you um, and get their needs met first. And for me, it comes back to that choice. You know, we hear a lot of excuses around. What's going on when when someone's using violence in a relationship? I didn't mean it. You know, you made me do it. Um, I was drunk, or I was taking other, you know, drugs, or um, I had my had a terrible childhood. I've got, you know, I'm depressed, etc. There are all these reasons that people will pose around why they are behaving badly in inverted commas. But fundamentally it comes back to my needs are more important than yours and I'm going to get my needs met first. At the centre of it all is we choose to behave, we choose our behaviour. There are 10 million excuses why someone would be abusive or violent, etc. But we choose to be like that, you know, and we can choose not to. So we know... Um, research tells us that many people who grew up in violent families don't go on to be abusive to the people around them. We know that people who use violence in their relationships can go to work and don't use violence at work. So it is a choice. And I think we have to really start from that point, that if you choose to use it, you can stop, and that we need to create a, a... We need to move beyond and I don't know I don't have the answer to that it's a complex thing where someone feels entitled to to um act a certain way to get their needs met so so the question of accountability is a really difficult one we have really um i think unuseful s- structural state-based structure structures that don't help us you know to do that you know we have a a police and justice system that I would say is not just. How does it provide justice? And, you know, there's only one way of doing it and that's that doesn't f- suit all of us, does it?
0: What other options do we have to keep ourselves safe and hold people accountable? What can community accountability look like? Laura unpacks accountability and why the stigma of straight cis men dating trans women needs to be addressed in order to reduce violence against trans women.
1: Cishet men who are attracted or in a relationship with a trans woman, I think it's really, really important for them to be open about that and normalise it, you know, for what it is and be comfortable um, in their own sexuality. Whether that's still straight or bi or whatever it might be, but actually being open, like, yeah, this is my partner and blah, 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 and destigmatizing it, which will make the lives of trans women a lot safer because, you know, there won't be all of this like fragile masculinity and insecurity, like, you know, you seeing a guy and then like you know after you have sex and he gets all ashamed and then like actively violent it's like really terrifying it's like oh my god is he gonna murder me and then is he gonna say that i trapped him and he didn't know you know i know for me like i don't see any any healthy or positive relationships between straight trans women and and men at all in the media or like anywhere but when you do see relationships Betrayed with trans people involved in the media, it's never nice. (laughs) I can't really think of any TV show or anything where it's been like, oh, that's so nice and happy, but I've seen, you know, the hurt and the trauma and being like, yes, I relate to that. I think men need to start holding each other to account a bit better. I'm really lucky that the men in my life that I'm close friends with are like that, and they actively... Um, work to foster that sort of community and work to make shit men less shit, um, I suppose, which is which is really cool and, you know, have sort of been witness to it. Like, one of our really good comrades now used to be, like, very, like, right-wing, bit of a misogynist, etc., and uh, my friends circle taking him in and, like, fostering positive male relationships and positive, like, maleness, like, not toxic masculinity, but, like, positive masculinity has really shifted him, and now he's, like, his solid comrade who, like, is, uh, an ally for sex worker rights, for trans rights, um, you know, and comes out and does the things and does the work, which is really cool. So I think community's a really big, um, big part of it, you know, the the saying that strong communities make police redundant. Um, I think we all need to be working towards stronger communities and especially stronger male communities um, where they do hold each other to account and they are actively working to make, make things better and safer for women. I think it's really important.
0: Accountability sounds great in theory. However, there are definitely some challenges to having these kinds of conversations with friends.
2: As Shamani explains. I think sometimes people have a very, like, I've got to stay, you know, like, someone's relationship is someone's, is their own business. Like, I can't get involved and people aren't going to like that and that sort of stuff. And that might be, you know, true. People might get really defensive. They might not be ready to hear, you know, that their relationship is unhealthy or there's, like, unhealthy things going on. But it's, like, I think if people are really concerned about what's happening, like, and, you know, your mate's pulling away and, like, you know, pulling closer into this, you know, violent relationship, the the best thing you can do is just keep reminding them that you're there because the person using violence might very well be saying things like, no one likes you anyway, no one's here for you. They're just pretending. They don't even want you around. I'm the only one that wants you around, like, you know, like, and you're not, like, worth very much and blah, blah. Like Like, the best thing you can do is just keep reinforcing that you are there and that you do care. And yeah, and like I think if we, as a queer culture, like got to a place where it was normal to to check in with each other and like, you know, like like you know, call people in about their behaviors as well, like call your friends in about their behaviors, because the thing is like we're not, because we're not educated around what healthy and unhealthy look relationships look like in in our communities, what you know, healthy conflict resolution is you know what are some ways that like mental health stuff can be like weaponized you know like that that's an abuse tactic that's not someone's mental health it's you know like so because we're not educated about that stuff like you know we're not we're not talking about like terrible horrible people doing this stuff we're talking about our friends and and our family like our queer family
0: and what about for ourselves how might we address using harm in our own
3: relationships.
0: Libby talks about power, consent, and the importance of unlearning in order to
3: navigate healthier relationships. It's about communication and consent and to not assume that your your values and your understanding of the way the world works is the same as your if you're in relationships with people, with other people. So it's talking about, you know, how how interactions and and values, but also talking about power. Who talks about power in their relationships? Um, You know, if I think about it for myself, it's like it's not a conversation that I have very often. I think that often when you're getting newly getting into a relationship with someone, you might talk about consent then. Is this okay? Is that okay? How do you feel about this? But then we get into these grooves with people and we stop talking about it. We elevate our needs over others. And we see that happening, we see that mimicked in, you know, in, in heterosexual relationships. Who role models healthy behaviour to us? Who teaches us how to do that? I, I'm really encouraged in the preventative space where younger people are learning about healthy relationships at school. I'm really encouraged to hear young children five year olds talking about their bodily autonomy and saying no that you can't do that to me that's my body i choose i never learnt that at school so that's something that's a start that we give children the language and they practice that what does it mean for us as adults it's there's a there's a lot to unpack there's a lot to unlearn about being in a a relationship that's equal and full of equity. We
0: can't really blame ourselves for inheriting power structures, but we can be responsible for our own actions and for reproducing those power structures in our relationships. It starts by joining the conversation and being willing to reflect on our own behaviour. You've been listening to QR Code with George Maxwell. Thanks to guests, Laura McLean, Shamini, and Libby Jameson for their time and for willing to be openly vulnerable on such a sensitive topic. Listen and download our episodes from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR Code and follow us on Facebook at QR Code 3CR. QR Code would like to thank the City of Yarra for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Our theme music is Ritual for Transformation, Produced by Michele Veschel. Next time on QR Code, James McKenzie will be talking about LGBTIQ sex worker health. Catch you next time.